I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Ryan Callenber. Ryan has over 15 years of experience in the information security industry. Ryan currently leads cybersecurity strategy for Proofpoint and is a sought-out expert for media commentary on breaches and best practices for enterprises as well as consumers. He joined Proofpoint from Watchdocs, where he served as chief marketing officer and was responsible for successfully building and leading the marketing team through the company's acquisition by BlackBerry. Prior to Watchdocs, Ryan was instrumental in running solutions across Hewlett Packard's portfolio of security products. He has also held a variety of marketing leadership positions at ArcSight and VeriSign. Ryan received his bachelor's degree from Stanford University, where he studied fault tolerance, cryptography, and authentication algorithms. In this episode, we discuss his start in cybersecurity, his transition to marketing and product management, the importance of communication skills, the changing role of the CISO, the malware research his team does, the spread of ransomware, and so much more. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening. Ryan, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing great, Doug. How are you? I'm doing great. So um, thanks for joining me on the show. And I just wanted to get a little bit of a background for you. How did you get started in cybersecurity? So I got started in cybersecurity the first time we called it cyber before we started calling it (laughs) InfoSec. And now I guess we're back on the cyber train. Uh, But that was back in the late 90s when I was an undergrad at Stanford. Uh, I started doing some work with a few of my professors around authentication technologies, some encryption technologies, some kind of self-verifying verifying code stuff, which was pretty speculative. Uh, but uh, it was it was a fascinating subject, and I've been in it ever since. And I noticed, you know, kind of from your, your at least from your background that I, I was able to dig up, that you, know, you had studied fault tolerance, cryptography, and authenticated, authentication algorithms. How did that segue to more marketing roles, though, as, as you became more of a professional in the industry? That, that's a great question. I will be completely candid in that I did not envision it going that direction at all. <laughs> but uh, I actually started on the practitioner side after the academic piece. So I, I dumped uh, myself straight into uh, sort of penetration testing, VAs, application assessments that uh, we were all doing kind of the early 2000s. In addition to some more kind of policy type roles, I was interim CISO a couple of different places, uh, never had the courage to do it full time. Uh, but uh, that was it was a great way to, fr- frankly, experience what the day to day looks like for a security person. And, you know, that was back when very few organizations had a CISO, very few of them had uh, even really manager level people with security in their title. It was all sort of done as a side job by network engineers and sysadmins. And uh, so I really kind of saw how the the market was evolving from the start. You know, at the same time, you know, you had uh, an interesting confluence of, of circumstances going on where this whole market was coming together around products, right? Because it wasn't about just configuring things that uh, were normal pieces of IT infrastructure for security purposes. People started really legitimately building things like detection technologies. Uh, So I got into the kind of MSSP and SOC side of things. That was a kind of a gateway drug to product management uh, where I tried to make them work better based on my own experiences attempting to get them to work in real environments. Uh, once you're into product management, you have to re- you have to really be able to tell the story of your product and, and why it works. And that turned out to be, for me, a way to get into kind of the more strategy and marketing side of, of security, which is uh, rife with snake oil, of course. Um, I think there are very few of us who have ended up in, in roles like this that actually did have practitioners backgrounds. So in in that way, I, I try and uh, not forget where I came from and, and try and keep things grounded in the facts and and, and hopefully uh, tell stories around products that will actually help people do their jobs better. Yeah, I was noticing that uh, certainly in your background that you had that that kind of technical side, but certainly, you know, with marketing, there's a huge communication side where, as you said, you have to, you can't just 
you know, sell the snake oil, you really have to have an understanding of the product. How how much, and it's probably a little bit of a beta question, but you know, how much do you value communication skills uh, in information security, both on the technical and sales side? Uh, it's extraordinarily important. And I, I think it's actually one of the things that's missing from the skill sets of some of the more, most talented people in this industry. Uh, you could look at people who can do can assess risk extraordinarily well, can even do kind of the the macro forms of that, proper threat modeling. But when you have to go talk to a board or talk to an audit committee and put that in the language of business risk, sometimes it breaks down. Even some of the better CISOs I know, they're just very, very metrics-driven and data-driven, which is good. And certainly it's hard to succeed in security without that. But once you have to tell a story around those metrics and that data and put it in terms that are going to make sense to a different type of audience, you know, a lot of, a lot of people fall down at that hurdle. Uh, so I, I really think that more people in InfoSec would benefit from understanding how that communication should flow. And there, there are lots of good efforts underway in the industry to get people better at that. It's a very, very different thing than communicating at a con or something where you're giving a talk, of course, even though that's a different form of communication skill that's equally valid. Uh, and, and of course, there are, are types of communication that uh, cybersecurity people seem to be really good at, like uh, coming up with memes on Twitter. Uh, but <laughs> that's a little different than succeeding in the boardroom, which if for a lot of uh, organizations and and CISO level people is going to make and break their careers. And we, I certainly think we've seen a, a greater evolution of the CISO role, as we said, you know, it kind of evolved out of IT, but we're certainly seeing more CISOs that are not necessarily reporting to an IT function. They're reporting either directly to the board, the CEO. Have you continued to see that trend in, in your kind of your day-to-day -day operations where you know the role of the CISO is, is more about business risk management that's coming out from under just a purely an IT function? It's certainly a trend. Whether that trend has stalled, I think, is an interesting question. Uh, because you certainly have very high-profile examples of organizations, uh, especially you know top five banks, where the CISO reports directly to the board or the audit, audit committee, uh, or they report up through a risk function. Uh, that said, it hasn't really uh, turned into a trend that affects sort of mid-market size organizations or or certainly not smaller organizations. Uh, it, security is still largely a function of, of IT, uh, and uh, that, that's reflected in the reporting structure. Uh, that said, the ability to report to a CEO or an audit committee or a board actually is a double-edged sword. And it can uh, it can be very very problematic if you don't have the communication skills that we just talked about. You know, one of the things that actually is a good thing about reporting to IT is that generally speaking, even if a CIO doesn't understand security, they understand technology and they largely understand technology risk. Uh, and I would also say that a lot of the better CIOs now do take it upon themselves to learn quite a bit about security because it's part of the risk management functions of their job. So uh, I, I wouldn't say that making the CISO function report to the audit committee or the board is uh, sort of a cure-all that we once thought it was going to be. Uh, although I would say that every organization big enough to have a CISO should have that CISO pre presenting to the CEO and presenting to the board on a regular basis. And that's certainly happening more than it did in the past. Uh, but that said, there are lots of ways to make it work. And it's also, it's also down to the individual person, whether they can even succeed in a reporting structure uh, like the ones we just talked about. And do you see with, with some of these smaller and mid-sized firms not adopting a, a, the role so much is it is it more resource driven where they just say hey you know we're, we're not going to fork out the money for that type of um uh, individual or even develop that type of reporting structure i i think it's scarcity driven there's just not that many good people who have CISO experience available at any given time uh, and even though job tenures as CISOs tend to be short way too short in my view uh, because there's still a stigma around breaches that I think we should be trying to get away from longer term. Uh, that that even with that short tenure, there's just not a big pool of great CISOs to go around, especially when you narrow that down to ones that have both the technical expertise to understand security meaningfully at that level and the ability to put things in terms of business risk and communicate around that that characterizes the truly great CISOs. You know, that Venn diagram, the, uh, the, the intersection there is pretty small and they're going to continue to be extremely valuable people that 
uh, can work pretty much anywhere they want to. And the mid-market is largely frozen out of, uh, of the ability to, to hire them. So is there a solution there? Because it only seems that the demand is going to, going to continue to outpace the supply. Is there a way to kind of fix that problem? And it's a good question. I, I think actually some of the solutions haven't worked so well. Uh, hiring CISOs from non-traditional backgrounds has not been ideal. I've seen CISOs come from a lot of different places, you know, obviously IT, networking, infrastructure, applications, but also HR and risk functions and compliance functions. And that doesn't always work well. Uh, Security is just sort of a, its own unique thing. And those of us who have been in it for a very long time, almost uh, we, we don't even really know the specialized knowledge that we often have because it's second nature. Uh, and that's very, very hard to acquire for uh, for someone who's coming in from a radically different job function. I think actually one of the most productive paths forward is is proper mentorship. And that's something that, frankly, almost no industry does all that well. But uh, in insofar as CISOs can uh, actually devote the very, very, very small bit of free time they tend to have to developing the next generation of CISOs, that, that's really how I think we, we make things better. But uh, given how stressful and how uh, all-consuming the current job of a CISO is, it's, it's hard to see that situation getting terribly better in the, in the next couple of years. Yeah, there was always that, that great business quote of, you know, you're not a leader until you've created a leader that can create another leader. But it's yes. certainly going to, it, it's a challenge in, in information security with, with high level uh, management and leadership roles. Absolutely. I think it's, it's um, in some senses a bigger challenge because you're not just uh, like, a, like a CIO where there's all kinds of different IT disciplines to draw from that are useful paths up the chain. Uh, in security, really, the, there's kind of one path, and, that's, uh, and that limits your candidate pool. Sure. So it's kind of stepping back. Tell, tell us a little bit about the role that you have with Proofpoint now and the types of research your team is doing. Sure. Uh, so my role is the SVP of cybersecurity strategy, which is a, a, a fancy overblown title for basically representing the viewpoint of the customer uh, at our executive staff. Um, so I have that that background and I spend a ton of time with our customers, which is is really great at Proofpoint because we have you know over half the Fortune 100 as customers, so we get to spend time with both uh, both them and, and uh, more mid market market customers that have very different security orgs, and uh, and the viewpoint of the customer is something that I think uh, cannot be overstated just how important it is for companies to not only um, not only listen to in terms of the evolution of their own products, but also in the evolution of their overall company, right? Proofpoint it is a very different place than it was five years ago. You know, the sort of research that we're now doing, you know, just, just what we did yesterday, where we um, saw a, a new, fairly interesting uh, malware dropper uh, for uh, basically a, a well-known rat associated with an, a Russian APT actor known as Turla. I, we just found that yesterday, and that's not the sort of thing that we were even looking for really 24, 36 months ago. Uh, and uh, having a coherent product strategy and one that is driven by what customers are fighting day in and day out and, and the challenges that you're trying to solve for them you know, I, I think is fairly invaluable. And at the same time, then you have to make sure that when you when you are a, a company with a pretty decent sized voice in the overall landscape and proof points right now, the, the number five cybersecurity peer play company by market cap, and we have a decent platform uh, that we we continue to tell our story in a compelling way that actually educates the market that our research actually ends up helping people make better decisions. And, you know, a lot of it focuses, of course, on what we what we see with our products. But at the end of the day, one of the, the biggest messages that we're able to get across because of our unique view, viewpoint on things is sort of how, how people get attacked, given that such a large fraction of targeted attacks happen over channels that we monitor, uh, like email, social, mobile, and SaaS applications. And that, um, and that research, even at a higher level uh, than the kind of in the weeds threat research that we do day in and day out to understand you know, particular campaigns, et cetera. You know, that is, is also something that um, a big part of my job is to, to share through the appropriate channels and in ways that are going to be meaningful to security people and help them do their jobs better. I think it's, it's kind of interesting what you guys probably get to see. I mean, there was for years, you know, from a uh, 
evaluation assessment and pen testing approach there was so much of the let's attack from the outside see how we can get in pivot move laterally um yep. but the reality is most of these attacks are coming in through email um and that's the malware too the malware droppers are coming in through phishing attacks uh you know d year after year that's what we see in every report so you, yes. you must see a a large number of these types <laughs> of variants come through um do you have you been able to really kind of create some of those the threat intel profiles for some of these different types of malware families uh, absolutely. And that's how we actually we recruit our, our threat researchers. <laughs> we just show them what we see, right? We get to see the stuff coming in. So rather than, you know, observe a bunch of indicators uh, on an endpoint or even the echoes of those indicators, basically, in, in things like protocol analysis and network traffic, we're showing them the message that came in the door that carried the malware. And at the same time, we can also see who else got that. And that is tremendously useful in being able to not only profile campaigns, but some of the actors behind them. Uh, on, the, on the email side, because you have a couple of really high volume actors that are, are more in the traditional cybercrime realm, uh, you know, a group we call TA505, TA being threat actor, uh, that was, that's behind the kind of torrents of Drydex and then Locky and then Jaff and actually a couple of weeks ago it was Globe Imposter. Uh, they're just this huge volume actor. And I, I would say that you know, the, the expertise that we've built and the visibility that we're privileged to have has meant that certainly when it comes to financially motivated cybercrime, we, we see about as much of that as anybody else and try and turn that into research that's not only consumable by ourselves, but also by uh, the broader community. Uh, we feed it back through you know, the Emerging Threats Pro rule set, uh, which is um, which is a Suricata rule set that's uh, reasonably widely deployed for which there's an open source option. And uh, that research itself is, of course, something that we, we try and bring to our customers in the most useful possible way, both in terms of obviously things like, you know, the forensics uh, for a given piece of malware, but also kind of what is what does that targeting look like? Did it hit just you and five other organizations? Did it hit just your vertical? Um, how target and actually but then you know the the broad campaigns, which are only interesting because they cause a lot of pain, especially when they're things like ransomware, you know, sort of fall away when you start looking at the more interesting targeted stuff, which can be more meaningful to a more sophisticated organization. Whereas, you know, a, a smaller organization might just not have enough expertise to even pack uh, unpack uh, one piece of malware let alone uh, let alone understand how it fits into a campaign uh, and then finally there's the side of it that's all about how do you do that communication piece how do you then make something that you know we think is cool because we look at malware and credential phishing and even malware free attacks like email spoofing all day long uh, we think those are cool technically and we think the social engineering behind them is cool but then how do you actually then turn that into something that's meaningful to the C-level that's meaningful to the board if you're actually reporting. And there's all kinds of ways to slice and dice that data. You can look at you know, how VIPs are being attacked and what's actually getting through to them. You, know, you can look at overall trends in the data. One of the, one of the biggest things that uh, has been fascinating for us to see is you, know, you look at people that moved to Office 365 and they see credential phishing tick up as a percentage of the malware, or, or excuse me, it attacks because there's no malware in credential phishing uh, that, that go after them. Uh, and I think that's that's really indicative of, of the threat landscape where we, we find ourselves right now. The attackers will do the simplest possible thing to achieve their objectives. Uh, and, and very often, that doesn't involve malware at all. Uh, but it, it's important to be able to understand that both at a, a tactical level and then report out on it at sort of an executive level. Yeah, it, it, and certainly we've seen this this the, the kind of evolution of some of the recon that we've seen with a lot of these where they're getting more more sophisticated, but also, you know, not necessarily more elegant, I would say. You know, mm -hmm. so one, one of the better uh, email attacks I saw last year was perfectly timed, end of the day, New York, summer. Hit the assistant at a professional services firm, said, hey, mm -hmm. can, you know, impersonating the uh, CEO, can you, can you send me all the, the W-2s for everybody in the, in the firm? Yep. And, you know, quickly sent it to me, you know, and it's this rush thing. You know she's about to get out the door, go spend a weekend in the Hampton or something. Well-timed. And he said, by the way, can you also, you know, for security, can you password protect it? And I thought that was just a beautiful <laughs> a part touch. of it because, yeah. you know, it, it walked right through any kind of DLP system because, it, you know, it literally everything walked out the door. They called us and I said, well, you, <laughs> you got to get your breach coach involved, but there's not much we can do from a forensic side. They, they just did a really great social engineering job. And, yeah, exactly. And it's trying to get that user education aware that, look, the, they're, they're thinking like that. And even more recently where I had somebody that said, look, 
um, you know, we don't have to worry about two-factor authentication because it's only the executives that are using it, um, you know, the ones that are on the road using VPN or, or you know, Office 365 Oh, and I'm like, but they're the ones that are targeted. <laughs> yeah, you know? no, exactly. And, and, and it's, 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 it's also fascinating. You mentioned what we would call an imposter attack. It gets referred to in any number of different ways. Uh, the FBI calls it business email compromise, which is deeply confusing for the record. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, the, an attack like that is fundamentally low tech. You know, if there's anything that's sophisticated, it, it's, as you mentioned, the social engineering. But if you're looking for it, a lot of the traditional security tool set simply does not apply. And there's a couple of ways to respond to that. That's first, we have to make sure the human firewall is better and better tuned, right? And they need to be aware that these tactics are commonly used. Uh, and on the other side of things, you have still a set of tools that are useful in detecting low-tech attacks. Right, we're spending a lot of time looking for O'Day and really sophisticated things in this industry. Where the the typical way you're going to get owned is, you know, phishing or a word doc with macros with PowerShell or uh, an attack like that, which involves nothing more sophisticated than probably display name spoofing, uh, which again is trivially easy from from a technical perspective. Uh, and you know, one of the things that we've had an interesting time trying to do w with our engineering team is to work on low tech threats. Right. And it's a it's a very, very different mindset when, you know, so much of this industry almost fetishizes these these really technically complex, interesting attacks that, you know, like think of the Pegasus mobile malware from about a year ago where you're daisy chaining a uh, a Safari exploit uh, with uh, two kernel level exploits in iOS to uh, to get RCE on, a, on an iOS device like that. We love, love, yeah. love stuff like that. But. In the end, what's going to hit you is somebody in Nigeria spoofing an email from the CEO to the assistant. And uh, and looking for that and actually developing the techniques to look for that, which, again, are, are completely different because there's no network signature to look for. There's nothing that happens on the endpoint. You know, you actually have to start looking in the communication channels for much more subtle things. Uh, but it's, it's it's been a shift that I think we've made uh, in addition to maybe – a couple of other companies, uh, just be, just because it's it's difficult to change that mindset and to not go after the interesting technical uh, attacks if, uh, frankly, they're not the the ones that are likely to cause the most harm in the wild. Right. Yeah. And, and certainly, when I've done uh, phishing campaigns, you know, we've we've had the sponsor of our campaign say, "Well, can you do something more difficult than an Amazon gift card?" I'm like, "No. Why should we? <laughs> that's the stuff that's going to win." But it kind of you know, starts leading to what we're talking about a little bit about that that kind of behavior analytics and the new thing certainly now is, you know, art artificial intelligence and AI and machine learning. With yep. with what you're seeing, do you see that playing a role? You know, th those three elements. You know. You know, behavioral yeah. analytics, machine learning, AI, trying to help kind of overcome that and say, okay, well, what, what are the weird trends? You know, what's the norm and not the norm that we can spot things easier? Yeah, no, I, I think it will, it will certainly play a role, but it might not be the role that most people currently using it are envisioning. Uh, having come from both the MSSP world and the SIM world in the past, we always wanted more data, more data, more data to, uh, of course, normalize so we can analyze it properly, that we could then try and extract, you know, signal from, from all the noise. Uh, the attacks that I just mentioned, you know, one of the, one of the things that everybody forgets in security is the first application of ML was actually the humble spam filter. It's a mm. random field. It's a random field Markov model, actually, yeah. if you even want to get technical about it. And, uh, it's, it's one of those things that actually is still a very, very useful tool to detect those basically fraudulent emails, the, the ones that might be spoofed. Because if, if you think about how you detect something like that, well, I have no malware payload to look at, so my sandbox is pointless. Uh, I have, frankly, nothing that from a reputational perspective is going to tell me whether this is good or bad, because this is a completely custom-crafted attack that I haven't really seen any element of before. But there are other signals I could use. I could figure out if this sender and recipient pair have ever communicated before. And if this is sent from my email domain, did it originate from the IP address of my email gateway or some external IP address? You know, is the uh, is the display name spoofed? Is the reply to address spoofed? And of course, there's very legitimate reasons to spoof both of those things. So uh, you have to 
be wary of false positives. And then, of course, you have to look at anything you can see in the header or the envelope or the subject line or the body of the message. All of those things are variables that are not predictive by themselves, but they can work their way into a model that does become predictive if you have enough information to feed it. And having having used that against these style of attacks, we caught tens of thousands of them uh, just in the last quarter alone. Um, and they're all reasonably low tech, but it's a great application of ML in a way that's not snake oil, frankly, because it actually works in practice. And it has been working over that communication channel for 15 plus years now. Uh, as far as the user behavior side and kind of connecting up things, there I see some actually interesting use cases that that also pair with these sort of social engineering style attacks. Uh, one of the one of the things that we have seen in in the landscape overall is this big shift towards credential phishing. So, um, you know, a few years ago, almost a hundred percent of malicious links in emails and, frankly, any other means in which they were delivered to humans uh, were pointing to malware. Uh, and back then, it was drive-by downloads and exploit kits. Uh, as Java and Flash and the browsers themselves started having fewer exploitable vulnerabilities, uh, the, the attackers moved away from that. And sometimes they moved to just having you download a file, like zip.js or something. Uh, but uh, more than that, they moved those malicious links to being credential phishing. And so uh, now, actually, just north of 90% of all of the malicious links we see, and we see over a billion emails a day, are credfish. They're not actually pointing to malware. And that is a, that is a big shift. Uh, it actually also, I think, opens the way to some interesting UBA-style use cases that will actually work in practice. Because you know, credential fish is hard to catch. It's, it's actually hard to catch at the same rate that you would catch malware. Uh, and we've actually taken to, to doing uh, very unorthodox things to look for credential fish. Uh, one of the more effective techniques is actually to open the URL in the sandbox and compare the, basically the content on the page, whether it's just HTML or the, the iframe or whatever it happens to be, to the types of output that we know credential phishing kits generate. Is the actual kits that these guys buy to generate the credfish pages don't change all that often. Uh, but you know that aside, one of the things that becomes interesting from a UBA perspective is, all right, I know I maybe I have this credential phishing campaign that's been delivered to ten of my users. Maybe five of them clicked on it. That's all things. Those are all things that uh, an or, a sophisticated organization could see. But which of those five do I actually worry about? Uh, on the other hand, you might also have you know things like Office 365 or G Suite, where their APIs can tell you a lot about what that user did that would have been really, really, really hard to get from, say, Windows event logs in, in the old world. Um, so you can connect up, all right, I know users A, B, C, and D, and E all clicked on this Credfish email, and I know on the other side here, I had a hundred different users download a lot of information from, I don't know, SharePoint Online or OneDrive or something, or even Salesforce. Um, being able to connect those two pieces of information, now that I know this user's been credfished, what did they have access to? What did they actually do with that access? That can help you as, as a responder or even an L1 or L2 take action to reduce risk in a way that kind of profiles the activity of that user, not in a way that is determined algorithmically, but in a way that actually flows very, very logically from the threat itself, which in this case would be to the credential, not even to a potentially infected endpoint, uh, and then also goes to the business impact of that threat. You know, who, What do they have access to and, and what do they actually do with that access? Those are the type of use cases that I think are going to be really, really useful as we start to look at ways that uh, kind of UBA can actually work in practice. As I, I will say, based on my own fairly early experience, we had a product at ArcSight called Identity View, where we were basically trying to uh, overlay identity or basically enrich all of the SIM events with identity. Uh, and then when you when you look at that, when you visualize it, or when you run you know, sort of pattern detection across it, you find that you have one of everything, right? And it's really, really, really hard <laughs> to get to a point where you're looking for something meaningful. But if, on the other hand, you proceed from the point of the threat, which, again, a modern threat is mostly to a user's endpoint or his or her credentials, and then move on from there and figure out what happened and almost do a time series, that's a really powerful approach that can, uh, that can certainly help the SecOps side of the world and, and seems to me to be a really viable uh, area of further investment for all kinds of different both uh, blue teams and, uh, and vendors. 
Yeah, and, and I think what comes out of this too, a little bit too, is if, if what I'm picking up is that it's, you know, the machine's not going to replace the human. It's going to be an, an enabler. Because um, I think too often in what we've seen, you know, it's got, I mean, RSA was rife with it this year. You know, AI and machine learning is going to, you know, be this this cure-all to all these things. But to me, it seems more that it's only going to still assist somebody, and it might be more of an 80-20 role, but mm-hmm. you're still going to need somebody there to look at the data and make that final kind of correlation that it's not going to replace people. It's just going to help them do their job better. Absolutely. I, I think it will replace a lot of the low-value tasks that we unfortunately sometimes have humans do. Uh, I, I, I've... Uh, I've been involved in designing and building out uh, about half a dozen socks in my career. And going back to the early days, you know, one of the, the biggest problems was always, you know, what does that workflow look like at L1 and L2? And how do we even, frankly, engineer L1 out of the equation? <laughs> yeah. Because it's not a very valuable thing to be doing to say, all right, I got this IDS alert coming in here. Was this target system even vulnerable to what it would have theoretically have been attacked by? You know, it, and and that's that's a simple example. But the, everything else that you do as part of you know responding to an incident like that, who is query looking up who who's that user in AD and you know and anything you have from a, any of your fifty thread Intel feeds or your your OSINT stuff, that's terrible kind of head on a swivel stuff, 50 browser tabs open per incident, just that kind of ugliness can probably be engineered out of the system pretty effectively. Uh, that said, once you get past that point, and once you have, all right, I know I have an endpoint that's been compromised because you know I, I saw this mutex there and these registry changes that you know, lead me to believe that this is a true positive alert, you know, then you still need a human. And when even when we're analyzing a lot of the the new campaigns we see basically every day of the week and sometimes weekends, uh, we haven't been able to engineer humans out of the loop either, even at our scale. We're constantly adding new detection techniques. We now basically run the same sort of defense in depth that world-class organizations run on their own networks, but before ever, things like emails are ever delivered. You know, we, we want that, that IDS hit actually in the sandbox before you'd ever actually have an, a user open up an email and get an IDS alert on their own corporate network, right, as, as an example. But when we look at the bigger campaigns, one of the things that we realized was even in terms of the forensics output, like we could give our customers a fire hose of forensics, and, and we do. We make that available via API for you know everything this malware did in all of the different sandboxes in which we got it to detonate. But that wasn't actually terribly useful because most of those IOCs were very low value. You might have a campaign that had you know 500 sending IPs, 10,000 different file hashes, and none of them would ever be used again for anything interesting. Uh, but at the same time, you might also have a secondary payload that gets downloaded from these four domains, right? And those four domain IOCs are really, really high value. Uh, so we basically now have threat analysts manually curate those IOCs and we make that available to our customers because, frankly, no one really wants to consume this giant junky feed of information, and we couldn't figure out how to get machines to do the work that a skilled malware analyst can do. Uh, and in the end, that that's probably okay. Uh, but uh, yes, it, it's 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 one of those one of those things where I think the low value tasks will eventually start to go away. Uh, in organizations that are sophisticated enough to roll things out properly, and Hopefully, L1 goes away in our lifetimes. But as far as the real work, uh, I, I see a tough, t- a tough time and a tough task ahead for AI and ML to replace most of that. Gotcha. Yep. And, you know, one of the things that we, we kind of got away from a little bit before, but, you know, certainly the you know, what we've seen security researchers for years and, and trainers say, you know, to users, don't click anything. But that hasn't yep. been really been working, uh, <laughs> and it's not going to work. I mean, we we communicate, you know, ninety percent of communication or more is by email. We send I don't know how many email attachments I even got today, so I can't even think about it. But you mm-hmm. know, it's uh, we. It seems to me that we need a better way to train or possibly enable the users. And would you agree? And what would some other approaches be to dealing with this issue? It's a it's a great point. I, I I've conducted 
I don't even know how many security awareness trainings in my career, and I have zero faith that any of them changed anybody's behavior. Uh, and and even now, the the modern techniques that we build uh, often un- undermine things that we spent years people tr- uh, training people to do. Uh, right now, if you're using a modern email security sys- uh, solution, it should rewrite URLs because a lot of them are good at the time of delivery and flip to being malicious later. Uh, and almost all of them actually have good reputation because they're hosted on things that are uh, basically hijacked legitimate sites that you know had a WordPress vulnerability or something. So we spent all this time training pe- people to hover over links and see if that looked good or not. Uh, and that's pointless in 2017. Uh, so actually, and the, the way forward in my view is actually fairly simple. You have to prevent as many threats as possible from reaching humans. And yes, you will never do a 100% uh, job of that. But that's where you know we, we underinvest as an industry. Right? If you look at you know overall threat detection spending, you know, over 60% of it's on the network. Over 20 some odd percent of it is on the endpoint. And then any other way in which a threat can come at you is uh, is actually a little bit less than 10% of the total spending. And uh, as we know, like 90 plus percent come in via email. Uh, the rest come in via other, frankly, forms of social engineering. Uh, and very, very few of them come in through the front door. And yes, there's a way to you know comp- find a web application vulnerability on an internet-facing server and then pivot to the DMZ and then move laterally from there. But that's really hard. Why wouldn't I just spearfish you? Um, so, so given that, you know, the the user awareness training piece to me seems like something that we'll always be able to do through things like phishing simulation, and maybe you'll get a marginal increase in uh, you know human awareness and a, a marginal decrease in click rate. Uh, our stats don't seem to bear out that any of that is working, given that the click rates are about the same year after year after year after year. So we'd either have to move to an architecture in which the click is not so harmful. So Credfish, of course, is a lot less effective if you're using two-factor authentication. Uh, or to uh, a sort of architecture where you're putting a lot more emphasis on the earlier stages of the kill chain, you know, recon through delivery, and making sure that fewer things get in the front door so that your skilled people can spend time on stuff that is truly sophisticated and going to get through that layer of defense while all of the other stuff gets cleaned up before it ever hits a user's inbox. Yeah, there's definitely going to have to be some evolution of uh, some of the approaches. And we certainly see it become uh, more prevalent now with such a shift in ransomware. Um, I mean, we've seen it kind of run rampant through email systems for the past couple of years. And again, mm-hmm. it's, it's something like this type of attack vector, this type of payload. Are we seeing this at the peak? Is this in, in kind of what you're seeing? The, uh, are we at a high? Is this just the norm? Um, or is this going to start to kind of abate a little bit? It's been interesting because we really had one threat actor that was responsible for a huge percentage of the the ransomware in the world, uh, and so they they by themselves move the needle so much that uh, it, it's hard to predict what they're going to do on a quarter by quarter basis. Uh, for example, in in the first quarter of the year, they were just they took a really 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 long Christmas break. They didn't come back until the end of March, uh, and they came back with banking trojans actually, and not ransomware. So. So the first three months of the year were pretty quiet, uh, and then in uh, the second quarter of the year, they were they were back to their old tricks. They had a couple new variants of ransomware that they tried in with all kinds of different file types, all kinds of different new forms of human interaction required to actually detonate the malware. So. Um, you know, a Word doc inside another Word doc that has macros in it and, uh, you know, links inside PDFs or a, in one case, it actually was a real Russian nesting doll. No, no pun intended. PDF with, with, with a Word document in it with a link inside the Word document, right? Oh, <laughs> so, I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> they're, they're good, but, you know, people will go through three steps to infect themselves with malware. It is mystifying. You know, the, They'll fill out CAPTCHAs to infect themselves with malware. I will never understand why they will infect themselves with malware by going through steps that they wouldn't go through to buy a pair of shoes. Right. Uh, but uh, but they, they will, right? And and given that, you know, I think the ransomware actors have figured out that, you know, it's 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 going to be easily monetized. Uh, most enterprise organizations, at least the bigger ones, have started to have good enough backups that they're not paying ransoms, but they, they have enough hunting ground with mid-sized companies and small companies that they're continuing to kind of go down market very, very, very successfully. 
they've also sort of stumbled on a different business model, which is just straight extortion. Uh, and you've seen this in, in media with, uh, with Dark Overlord. Uh, and you, of course, saw that with the South Korean hosting provider that ended up paying a seven-figure ransom to get all of the access to their customers' data back, uh, where a more sophisticated attack will actually be a negotiation. It won't be volume ransomware asking for Bitcoin that either goes after endpoints or file shares. Uh, it will be a more sophisticated extortion attempt. Uh, that, to me, feels like the way forward. Uh, and it also, of course, um, kind of runs into the other trend that we see around destructive malware uh, and destructive things that pretend to be ransomware uh, that uh, will probably continue to be used, given that they, they're effective for the purposes that their creators intended them for. And one of the things that come up, too, with, with ransomware certainly is the question of should I pay? Um, and, you know, even with the organization I work with now, we, we maintain a Bitcoin collections, a certain wallet, so we can pay if they have to. But it's always a tricky subject. But in your opinion, what, what do you think organizations should do if they're forced with, you know, locked up, you know, file share data for all their financials and it's a Thursday afternoon? That's a great question. Uh, I, I start because, you know, I've, I've been in this for a long time and you actually – you develop sort of both a, a grudging respect and a deeply ingrained hatred from your, for your adversaries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and you know, these are very bad people. Right? You, you should do everything possible to avoid funneling money to them. Um, the groups that benefit from cybercrime are involved in horrific things all around the world. And if it's at all possible, it's not just a decision that you make based on your own company's operations, whether it's cheaper to try and recover some other way or, or pay the Bitcoin. It's a decision you make, I think, through through an additional moral dimension of where does that money go and what does it end up being used for? Uh, if you're a hospital and your number one goal is to provide service to your patients, then obviously the moral calculus is different. But I, I do think it's a fairly important aspect to uh, really making a thoughtful decision about whether to pay a ransom or not. Uh, overall, I, I think that there are going to be certain cases in which uh, paying ransoms are unavoidable, and uh, it, it, you certainly wouldn't want to blame the victims of ransomware attacks for that. But uh, given that through decent backups, most organizations will not get into the, the situation where they, they lose all their data permanently, you know, I, I, I find it hard to believe that given how, how, uh, how deep we are into this current ransomware ap- epidemic, which is going on about two years now, uh, that most organizations won't have developed good enough backup procedures to avoid paying the ransom. Uh, although, of course, you know, you do have ransomware that goes after the backups, which yeah. is a problem. Yeah, given, given with the cloud technology that's out there now, um, and, and certainly some of it's just good good practical hygiene of not giving everybody in the network uh, open access right shares to all the shares yes. on the network. Or, or, or even lo- local admin, as you saw with uh, the yeah. yeah, and lots of other permutations of that. And, but we've certainly seen now, too, you know, with, with WannaCry and the new variant that Proofpoint discovered, that works in the same way, the more the worm type. Um, but, these, but these are different types of attacks and different types of ransomware that we've seen you know, from your traditional email payload, let's say. Um, and a lot of that was, you know, based off of the shadow brokers and SA dumps. <laughs> are, yes. Are, are, is, it, is it, is again, is this the end of it with these types of newer variants or are we expecting to see more of the similar? That's a good question. I, I think the, the main reason that we all forgot how to defend against worms is that no one was incentivized to make worms for a while, right? For <laughs> a while, yeah. <laughs> you, you, go back to, you go back to Conficker, right, which didn't have a payload, if everyone remembers, you know, or didn't, or didn't have a malicious payload more accurately. Uh, you know, worms are not monetizable. You know, ransomware is highly monetizable. And uh, the, the actors that really kind of established modern email as a uh, as a malware vector started uh, with banking trojans and were very 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 successful before pivoting into ransomware and now actually they switch back and forth um, so it, it, at this point I think given given what we're seeing what we're seeing on our research you know there there are a wide variety of ways to monetize malware uh, Adilkas, which is the Monero mining worm that I think you were referring to, is an interesting one, although that vector doesn't seem to be as profitable as either bankers or uh, ransomware yet. 
uh, though given the price of Bitcoin right now, it might soon become <laughs> that profitable. Um, that, but, uh, but more broadly speaking, I think you have uh, an interesting threat landscape in which you continue to have actors that are financially motivated. You continue to have the espionage actors be very, very active and not be financially motivated and be very, very hard to catch because you know, they're not flashing a red screen at you and asking you to pay a ransom. They're just sitting there undetected, living off the land. Um, and then you you finally have the uh, just the people that want to watch the world burn, who didn't exist in the threat landscape until uh, a few years ago when wiper malware became more prevalent. Uh, and that's a really interesting addition to the threat model that's not going to affect every organization. And certainly, I don't think any, anyone doing business in the Ukraine had, it, uh, excuse me, Ukraine had it as part of their threat model until fairly recently. But it, it's it's a meaningful difference from everything that we were pre- preparing for before. And regardless of what vector it goes across and whether it requires a wormable vulnerability in something like SMB to spread properly, which it doesn't, of course, uh, you know, it's something we all have to plan around now. And it will probably not go away as long as there are threat actors that are interested in achieving those goals. Mm-hmm. You know, and when it comes to those types of uh, exploits that get out in the wild that were potentially the result of a three-letter agency hoarding these types of vulnerabilities. What's your kind of opinion on, you know, maybe, you know, it's it's when a state actor like that, you know, even if it's our own government, holds back on vulnerabilities that could have such a wide wide impact on so many different organizations. I mean, that, that one was a really interesting case study in uh, the, the VEP or the vulnerabilities equities process <laughs> in that, you know, certainly, if you were part of you know Equation Group, we are, again widely believed to be NSA, and you were using Eternal Blue as um, uh, as a, a tool to spread laterally within networks, you know you were you were hacking stuff on easy mode. I mean, that was an amazing vulnerability exploit combo that uh, was just really, really, really effective. Uh, but then once it once it got out, um, interestingly, I thought we saw a lot of ba- parties behave pretty responsibly. Uh, somebody let Microsoft know about Eternal Blue and pointed to, or maybe just hinted at what little piece of code they might want to take a really close look at. Uh, and so they, they got it patched before the Shadow Brokers dump. And there was that brief moment of panic ahead of, I believe, Easter weekend. It's been a long year uh, where everybody thought this was genuine O-Day. And it wasn't because Microsoft said, well, no, three days ago on Patch Tuesday, we put out a patch for this. So clearly something had been communicated, which is, again, exactly as it should be. Uh, and oddly enough, the shadow brokers themselves had waited until that patch came out before they dropped it. So it was a it was an interesting set of events that, you know, if, if they had happened slightly differently, could have been substantially more harmful in that, uh, you know, th- there was no reason for the shadow brokers, theoretically, to wait until... Uh, the patch Tuesday had come out in order to release that code. Uh, and, and they did. And there's got to be a very interesting story behind that that probably none of us will find out in our lifetimes. Uh, but uh, it, overall, I, I don't think you can take away uh, the fairly key elements of the tool set of spy agencies. Like That's their job. They're going to spy on things. And if they have um, exploits that are powerful, they do, certainly need, need to do a really, really good job taking care of them and making sure that they don't get burned. Uh, but uh, I, I think they're they're more than within their rights to do that. You know, in, in the end, Microsoft wrote the buggy code that enabled Eternal Blue to work. Uh, that said, there has to be better coordination for what happens when these things uh, get out there, and uh, and that's that's something I think. You know, sort of got pieced together and was less catastrophic than it could have been with the the first shadow brokers dump there but uh in the future it points to probably uh, a slightly different version of the of the vep where you know something that is truly warmable and could you know take down the internet you know, maybe as even a, a state actor or an age a spy agency you don't want to hold on to that you want to fix it uh in a way that keeps the world safe given that you probably have lots of other tools to achieve your own ends. Yeah, and, and you know, it does come down to uh, you know, the tactics and motivations of some of these folks. I think to that last point is, you know, there, there's always been the, uh, you know, I would say increased awareness or concern of, you know, hey, can a foreign actor take out um, our power grid? 
might mm-hmm. not be in their best interest to do that <laughs> with yeah. how, without the power down, the computers are down, and then they kind of lose their espionage <laughs> capabilities. So exactly. it's always important to understand the motivations behind the attacks rather than just the, the cool tech behind it. Right, absolutely, and I, I think actually that's that's changed as much of as much as anything else the threat modeling lately. Uh, although even just in terms of the other areas that are controversial around you know vulnerabilities that are held by uh, by our government and others, you know, one of the things that has pretty pretty clearly been indicated by the shadow broker stumps as well as you know the Vault Seven stuff uh, and and everything else that's come out lately is that. We've moved from mass surveillance, or at least we think we have moved from mass surveillance to targeted attacks, and that's that's a good thing, actually. You know, I think most most of the time, if you have a state espionage actor in, interested in going after you, you know, you, I mean, that, that's not the everyday person, um, and for them to be having to use targeted attacks rather than simply eavesdropping on all communications everywhere in sort of a more Big Brotherish way. You know that that actually re- represents a sort of progress, and I feel more comfortable about it as a citizen. Uh, and that was one of the kind of I think under discussed things that came out from from all those recent uh, leaks. Yeah, very interesting point. Well, Ryan, I, re- I greatly appreciate you taking the time today to be on the podcast. Uh, you, what else are you up to d- today these days, and where can people find you? Uh, sure, I'm at R Caliber on Twitter. Uh, we continue to do lots of I think extremely interesting threat research. Uh, again, we just had the Turla thing come out and we post on Proofpoint Threat Insight. That's the blog there. Another big way that uh, you can come see me, uh, we'll have our, actually our annual customer event. It's called Protect. It's in New York uh, the Wednesday and Thursday after Labor Day. And uh, we have about uh, three or 400 of some of the smartest people in cybersecurity. Brian Krebs is keynoting and it's a wonderful event. So ping me if you're interested. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I you know I, I mistimed that. I, I spoke to one of our, our colleagues that, that we both know at Proofpoint, and I found out about it. Uh, and I, I unfortunately I get there to New York City on the seventh, so I miss it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get you next year. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, great. I'll be sure to put all those links in the show notes as well. And uh, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.